Hey, I want to welcome you to the online sermon ministry at Coastal Community Church, and we are so glad that this is a part of your spiritual journey is watching the sermon online. And, and, uh, but we have a deep conviction at Coastal Community Church that part of our spiritual growth is also to be a part of a Christian community in a local church. And so while we hope that this sermon supplements your spiritual growth, uh, we all want to encourage you to be a part of a local church. And so if you live in our community you don't have a local church home, we'd love to encourage you to join us at uh, one of our two services. Uh, we just recently relocated, so we meet at 101 Village Avenue in Yorktown, uh, Virginia, and we have two service times, 9, 15, and 11 o'clock. So if you don't have a, a home church, I want to invite you to attend one of our services. Um, this morning's sermon um, <clears throat> is one I'm passionate about. It's not a so what sermon. It's not the kind of sermon you're going to go, oh man, probably it's not a rah-rah sermon. It's, it's really a, an encouragement and an equipping sermon. It's, it's actually a sermon I've preached before. Some of you will recognize it, and that's okay. Because I think this, what we're going to talk about this morning, is the question of this culture. I was talking to somebody after the first service who has a passion for what I just talked about in the first sermon. And, and I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, parents, <coughs> you have college kids, or you have a student that's in high school, and you're preparing them to go to college our liberal arts colleges are eating our children for lunch, okay, philosophically. Because we haven't prepared and equipped our children to answer the question, how do I, how do I find truth? How do I know what is true? Somebody sent me this video a couple weeks ago. And uh, I, I, every time I see it, I, I used the first few times I saw it, I chuckled at it. The more I watch it, I get disturbed by it. It's a, the video is, is, is set in the University of Washington, and there's an interviewer, and he's going around, and he's asking students certain cultural issues that are facing our culture. And as he asks these questions, he gets more and more absurd to where the students have a hard time answering him, and, and they realize the fault, the faultiness of their own logic or lack of logic, okay? So I wanted to show this to you. This is set on the University of Washington, some students that are asked questions that begin with the, our own gender debate that we're facing in our culture. Check this out. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think. Uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether you're sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had 
some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you, no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong, you're like, that's wrong to believe in it, because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six-foot-five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six-foot-five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? What do you think? Don't everybody answer one. Don't clap, okay? I'll tell you what, that's horrifying. I, the first few times I saw that, I laughed, I chuckled, you know, I got the silliness of it. Every time I see it, I, I get more and more disturbed. It's, it, I'm, I'm to the point of crying for our culture. I, 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 I hope that that thinking doesn't make its way into our governments or we'll have adult males sitting alongside of our seven-year-olds in first grade. I mean, that, that opens the door to pedophilia, right? I mean, we understand that, correct? I mean, what the door, I, we were joking about this when I was on my trip to Africa. I said, you know what, I'm going to identify as a senior adult so I can collect Social Security if the birth certificate doesn't matter. Right? I mean, where does this end? But more, more than the culture. Like, I, so I want to change now. I don't want to. I don't want to preach to the them out there, whoever we think that is. I, I want to preach to us in here. I'm going to work with. I'm going to give you a couple of my assumptions this morning. Okay. I'm going to assume that most of you are here this morning and you're a Christian. 
You're a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to assume that's the bulk of who we are this morning. I understand there are some of you this morning, maybe you're investigating. You're not yet there, and you're investigating claims of Christ. Welcome. I want to give you some handles of why we believe what we believe. Okay, so I want to talk to us because my what, what horrifies me about that video is I'm afraid that video is going to seek its way into the church. Where we're not sure what is true and what is not true. Where we will not be able to determine right from wrong. Where we will not be able to declare the things that God has declared already for us. And so this morning is an equipping sermon. It does lead to our next series, okay? I'm kind of setting us up for the next series called Distorted, where we're going to look at really some cultural issues in our culture, that how the Bible defines it, and how the culture and even the church is beginning to distort the truth of the Word of God. If you're new to Coastal, I want you to know this. This is our Bible, okay? We hold this up. We believe that this is God's word, and we believe that it's true. We believe that it's easily understandable in most cases. Yes, there's some passages that we have to sift through, but all in all, it's clear, and it's understandable, and it's sufficient. 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 16, the Apostle Paul writes this about the word of God, about Scripture, And he says, all scripture is inspired by God, and it is useful to teach us what is, what's that next word there, church? What? Let's do it together, right? Let's do it together so we're all on the same page. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is, what is true. To make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. By the way, the scripture is very clear, like all of us are sinners, The church is not about pointing out one specific sin. The Bible says we've all rebelled against the holiness of God. We are all sinners. We all need a gentle rebuke. We all need to know what the truth is. We all need to repent of doing things our own way. And we all need to get on board with doing it the way God has instructed. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare us and equip us and equip people to do every good work. As human beings, our pursuit should be truth. I'm going to make a very, very bold statement. If Christianity proves to be untrue, you should pursue something else. You should pursue a different worldview, different religion, a different book. There's something that trumps, in a way, even Christianity, and that's the idea of truth. In fact, that's my first point this morning. I want you to know that truth is its own authority. Truth is its own authority. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, says this. He says, authority belongs to truth and truth only. We live in a culture where truth is being defined as to each his own. The goal in our lives is not to give opposite worldviews a seat at the table of acceptance. The goal is truth. 
We must pursue truth and we must build upon the truth. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will do something for you. What will it do, church? It will set you free. So I think the opposite of that statement is probably also true, right? If we're building on a lie, what does it lead to? It leads to bondage, right? And so we need to pursue the truth. Now I want to tell you about the Bible, okay? The Bible has an assumed authority, all right? The Bible assumes upon itself that it's true. Now, some of you here that are maybe skeptical or investigating go, I got you, it's circular reasoning, all right? The Bible nowhere sets out to defend itself as true. And in fact, in the court of law, if someone self-assumes their story to be true, the burden of proof falls upon the opposition to prove that the self-assumed story is false. Does that make sense? And so there's a reason that the Bible, while being self-assumed is true, has stood the test of thousands and thousands and thousands of years because it is yet to be proved untrue. And so it's okay to come to the scriptures, to come to the text and say it self-assumes that it's true. It is yet to be proven that it's not true. Therefore, we can work with the idea that it's true. Does that make sense? We're just assuming upon the text what it already assumes upon itself. Now, I hope you understand that the, <clears throat> the central figure of the scriptures, of the Bible, of the Word of God, is the person and the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ, right? In fact, good Old Testament teaching will always be a signpost to Jesus, right? The whole Old Testament points to Christ. Then we have the Gospels, the four testimonies, I guess, if you will, of the person and work of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have the back end of the scriptures, okay? The epistles written by the apostles that let us know what is our job going forward now that Jesus has ascended into heaven and commissioned his people to make Jesus famous through the vehicle of the church to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Does that make sense? And so that's the back end, and so let's start with Jesus, all right? Let's talk about Jesus and what he thought about the Scriptures. Let's talk about Jesus' authority. Because we're working with the assumption that you know that the Bible points to Jesus Christ. Jesus affirmed the authority of the Old Testament Scripture. So to be clear, I think you guys get this, but I just want to be clear. We don't have the New Testament before Jesus walked the earth, right? So Jesus only, I always say, what was Jesus's Bible? It was the Old Testament. Jesus assumes the authority of the Old Testament. Jesus affirmed its truth. Jesus affirmed its historicity. And Jesus affirmed the authority of the Old Testament. In fact, if you read the Gospels closely and the teachings of Jesus closely, Jesus refers to Abel of Cain and Abel, Noah, the flood, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, David, the Psalms, the prophet Elijah, and Jonah. He refers to them as historical figures, historical facts, and truths on which you can build your lives and you can trust. Now, for those of you in college or those of you parents who are about to send some kids to college or those of you grandparents who have grandkids that might be going to college, all right? They're going to go to some liberal institution and they're going to be, your kids are going to be taught that Jesus is a good prophet, a good teacher. You're, that is the most ridiculous thing that you can say about Jesus Christ. We either reject him out of hand or he is who he says he is. 
Jesus made the claim that he's the only way to God the Father. He said, you want to know God? It's through me. You want to know the truth? It's through me. You want to have real life? It's through me. John chapter 14, verse 6. Okay, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament as the word of God, as the power of God, as the truth of God. So he's either crazy or he's who he said he is. But please, let's stop doing this disservice that Jesus was a good prophet. He's far more than that. He claimed to be far more than that, right? Claimed to be deity. By the way, that is what got Jesus crucified. Did you know that? It wasn't the Roman government. They were the instrument. It was the Jews, and the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was teaching. Remember when the paralytic was dropped down through the roof, and his friends wanted him to heal this paralyzed guy, and they put him at the feet of Jesus because the house is so crowded. They burst a hole in the roof. They put their friend through, and Jesus looks at his friend, their friend, and what's the first thing he says? Remember? Remember what he said? Anybody? Your sins are forgiven. Imagine being the paralyzed guy. Like, that's not what I was hoping for. You know, I've been in his bed my whole life. And so Jesus asked a question, which is easier to say. It's a great question. What's easier to say? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's really hard to prove. Right? But if you're God, what's easier to say? What's easier to say if you're God? It's not a sure question. Right? Get up and walk. Because healing somebody's easy compared to taking care of sin, right? And so he says, to show you that I can forgive sins, check this out. Take up your mat and go ahead home. Jesus claimed to be deity. He's not just a good teacher. He claimed every, all the Jews understood he claimed to be God wrapped in flesh. And Jesus Christ believed in the truth, the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. Check this out in John chapter 10 when Jesus is defending his divine nature as God wrapped in flesh. He actually quotes Psalm 82, and he says this about Psalm 82 in John chapter 10, verse 35. And he says, and the scripture, referring to John cha of Psalm chapter 82, cannot be broken. What's he saying about the Old Testament? It's scripture. It's the word of God. And in dealing with the question of his resurrection, and the Sadducees come to Jesus, they ask a trick question. In Matthew chapter 22, about the resurrection, Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the what, church? Scriptures. What's he referring to? The Old Testament. You don't know the Scriptures. And then he closely links the Scriptures to the power of God. He says, you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. So Jesus recognized both the authority and the power of the Old Testament as being the Word of God. So that's the Old Testament, okay? And by the way, I'm, I'm doing a brief overview here this morning. Let's talk about the New Testament and its authority. Let's start with the trustworthiness of the Gospels, first of all. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, when it comes to history and antiquity, a lot of times someone will argue, well, we can't really know something that happened 2,000 years ago. I mean, Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago. I mean, how can we really know anything about Jesus? Okay? That's the wrong question because the further we get removed from Jesus, the more that question can be asked, right? 3,000 years from now, 4,000 years from now, how can we know anything about Jesus? Alexander the Great, no one debates the historicity of Alexander the Great. No one debates his accomplishments. 
Did you know that the closest evidence that we have of Alexander the Great and what, who he was and what he really did is over 400 years removed from when he actually walked the earth? So we have Alexander the Great, 400 years later, we have something in writing about Alexander the Great. So the question when it comes to history and antiquity is not how far removed, but how close to the actual events we have documentation. Does that make sense? So what I'm about to say, hopefully I'm not boring you. Parents, stay with me. This is super important for your children. Super important. Because this is what's going to get thrown at them when they go to college one day, I'm telling you. And they're going to come home, and they're like, I don't know if I can trust this stuff anymore. What's important is how close we have records to the actual events. Ready for this? The Gospels were written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. Alexander the Great, 400 years removed. Jesus within a lifetime. Isn't that cool? In fact, we, we don't really even have, it. there's almost not any, in fact, I've read one person that said, if we can't know the historicity of Jesus Christ, we can't know the historicity of anything in antiquity. That's how much documentation we have. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, okay, 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say, not in this verse, okay, we'll look at it in a little bit, but goes on to say that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Okay, the resurrection of Christ is the linchpin of Christianity. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, y'all might as well go do something else on Sunday morning besides gather here for corporate worship. Because we don't have anything. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as what? What's the word there, church? Scriptures, what's he referring to? He's referring probably to the Old Testament. Jesus was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. What is Paul saying? He builds the case. The resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. If it's not true, go believe something else. And then he says, there's over 500 people that saw it. You can go ask them. Is that cool? I was listening when I was, first wrote this sermon several years ago. I was listening to, to two of my favorite theologians, Mike and Mike in the morning. And um, <laughs> some of y'all listen to them too. And so there, <clears throat> there was this book out that uh, an, uh, an NFL agent had written. Uh, by the way, I've got good, more good news for you today's kickoff of NFL Sunday. But whatever. Um, so, um, right, go Hawks. And so... Um, this book had come out by an agent by the name of Lee Steinberg, and he wrote this book called The Agent. And in this book, he made these crazy claims that there were several agents, NFL agents of these players that had manipulated one, of the, one or several of the drafts of the NFL. And Mike and Mike just thought this was earth-shattering news, right? And they went on a rampage about, you know, could it be that agents are actually manipulating the outcome of the NFL draft? And Mike Golick, in the middle of his rant, said, this is crazy because all the pertinent people of the story are still around to refute it. And I was like, bingo, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying about the resurrection. If it's not true, go ask some of the people. There are eyewitnesses to the account of the resurrection. 
I'm the only one that finds it exciting. I'll yell louder if I have to. This is amazing to me, okay? And so we have the authority of the Gospels and the resurrection of Christ. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, okay, very educated. He was a doctor. He was meticulous. He was careful. He was clear, okay? And he wrote this in Luke chapter 1. He's writing to a, probably a government official named Theophilus, okay? He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the what, church? The truth of everything that you were taught. Luke is almost daring his readers. I'm almost daring them. Go ask somebody. You don't believe this word to be true? Go ask them. So we can trust the Gospels. We can trust the letters of Paul. Our New Testament is written by those who had a relationship and saw personally the risen Christ. And so the Apostle Paul starts by helping us understand his, his apostleship and his authority over his letters. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7. He says this. He says, then when I, he, meaning the risen Christ, was seen by James and later by all the apostles, last of all, and he's talking, by the way, he's about to talk about the Damascus Road. Hope you know your Bible a little bit. If you don't, Acts chapter 9, where Paul was named Saul and he was persecuting the church and the risen Christ shows up on the Damascus Road and converts him, okay, saves him. And so verse 8, he says, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I was the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor. That's the word for grace. God poured out his grace on me. Then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, his writing to the church of Thessalonica, verse 13, the apostle Paul says, therefore, we never stop thinking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very what, church? Word of God, which he says, which of course it what? It is. This is a crazy claim, yes? In fact, I read this and I'm like, is he nuts? I mean, he's He's claiming to have written the words of God. So here's the next question we got to ask. Ready? Is this true? Is this true? Now, some of you are getting a little fidgety right now, right? You're getting uncomfortable. I don't know why. I mean, if you're here this morning, I want you to get this. Here's what you believe. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, here's what you say you believe. You believe that there is a creator. We didn't just show up by accident. That's good atheism and humanism. Okay? You didn't just show up by accident, by Big Bang. There's a creator. He created you on purpose. He set us in a perfect spot, but we rebelled against his holiness and his, and his righteousness, but he, he didn't leave us in our sinful mess. He loved us enough, and so what he did is he wrapped himself in flesh. He was born of a virgin, 
weird, okay, is born of a virgin, wrapped himself in flesh, was the God-man, lived his life perfectly. He lived the life you and I couldn't. He then hung on a cross. While on the cross, the God of the, the, God of the universe poured out his hatred on sin. He poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sin, okay. Then he died on the cross after paying the penalty for sin. He was laid in a grave, all right, and then three days later, he rose from the grave, Resurrection Sunday, authenticating his person and his work and his teaching. And then when you bow a knee by grace through faith, you bow a knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you receive a deposit of the third person of the Trinity in your heart and life, the Holy Spirit that molds you more and more into the image of God, okay, that's helping you in your process of sanctification to be more like Christ. That's what you believe as a Christian. All right? I've actually preached a sermon that said, we believe crazy things, right? And so the question is not its craziness or lack of craziness. The question is, is it what? Is it true? You're getting it. That's why 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's adamant that resurrection is the linchpin of this whole thing. If God doesn't raise people from the grave, he didn't raise his son from the grave, go do something else. And so we have to ask the question, is this true? Paul claims that these are the very words of God. Second Peter, the Apostle Peter, in referencing to the Apostle Paul's letters, he says, and remember, for 2 Peter 3, 15, and remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you about the wisdom God gave him. Verse 16, Peter now chases a rabbit trail. I love this because this is what all us preachers do when we're preaching, all right? He chases a rabbit trail. He says, speaking of things, these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of what, church? What is Peter saying about Paul's letters? You don't know. Scripture, right? He's saying they're right there with the rest of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. And so, man, we have the reliability of the New Testament. I want to talk briefly about the canon, all right? Let me talk briefly about the canon. The canon is the 66 books that the church recognizes as the Word of God. The word canon means rule or measuring stick, okay? And all the canon is, let's go to this next slide, all the canon is, is the recognition of the authority of God in the Word of God. So the early church took the information, just like some of the information I gave you very early on, and recognized the Scriptures. Now, in A.D. 367, some 330 years after Jesus walked the earth, we have a letter from an early church father, a guy by the name of Athanasius, Athanasius recognized the 27 books or letters of the New Testament that we now call Scripture. He recognized them as Scripture. So I want, you, I want, to, I want to give this its right place, right? Talked about Alexander the Great, which, by the way, Alexander the Great, we have a lot of documentation in history about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great existed 
400 years later, we have documentation of what he did on earth, okay? Jesus, his time on earth, within 65 years, we have all the New Testament written about Jesus. 27 books, all right? 27 letters, all right? And then inside 330 years, we have the early church now recognizing these letters as authoritative, having come from God, having been the words of the Lord. Isn't that great news? I hope that gives you some confidence this morning. No one's asking you. So, yes, we believe in the supernatural. To which, for anyone that doesn't believe in the supernatural, you've got one major problem. If you're here this morning, you don't believe in the supernatural. You know what it is? How'd you get here? Yes? How'd you get here? How did all this created order get here? That is the question. That's why over and over in your New Testament, we looked at this in Hebrews chapter 1. The author of Hebrews starts with, our God is the creator. It's the starting point of all this. Right? So we believe, yes, we believe in the supernatural. Why? Because we believe God created out of nothing all this order and our ability to think and heal our body, all this stuff that all this, you're, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. So yes, we believe in the supernatural, but we're not checking our brains at the door, church. Okay, because the issue is what is true. And so the early church recognized the authorities of Scripture. Which, by the way, Sir Isaac Newton is often credited, one of the great scientists of, of all time, is credited with discovering gravity. Did he discover gravity? Not really. He recognized it, right? He recognized it was there. He recognized how it works. And, and so in a very similar way, the early church recognized the authority of the Scriptures. Okay, now in your notes, I gave you guys, uh, I gave you two books that you really you should read, okay? And I'm, so I'm hopeful uh, this morning that you'll do a little due diligence I'm hopeful that you won't just sit here and, and take, I don't, I don't have in my time allotted this morning enough time to give you everything, all right? I'm hopeful you'll do some due diligence and prepare and equip yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. The book Doctrine, What Christians Should Believe by Mark Driscoll and Gary Bershears has a great chapter in it about the canon and how, we, how the early church uh, recognized the authority of the New Testament, okay? And I would encourage you to buy that book and read that, okay? So, so we have the uh, recognized authority of the church. And then, number six, okay, is what I'm calling cultural authority, cultural authority. And the idea here is to zoom out for a thousand years, okay, thousands of years, and see the impact that various worldviews have on a culture, Okay? I want you to zoom out and, and look at the culture where Hinduism is prevalent, where Buddhism is prevalent, where Islam is, pre- is prevalent. You, you, you now live in a culture where atheism and humanism is prevalent, okay? That's the culture you live in. I want to encur- challenge you and encourage I, So let me, this really is meant to be an encouragement, okay? You live in a post-Christian nation. I hope you recognize that. So the good news is... The church has always thrived in post-Christian nations. That's the good news, right? So I couldn't be more excited about the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm, I'm more excited now than when I first got into ministry almost 20 years ago. All right, so I'm very, very excited. Uh, I heard a pastor and teacher, John MacArthur, said this, and it was, I was saving this for another sermon. I'm going to give it to you now, all right? Islam cannot be a religion of love. 
Now, that's a shocking statement, isn't it? It's not going to win me a whole lot of popularity contests in this culture. The reason is, Allah is a singular God. The reason Christianity is a religion of love is our God is a Trinitarian God. He's one God, but he's revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have three equals that love one another. Does that make sense? And so therefore, the overflow of the God of the Bible is love. And so where Christianity and Judaism, is, uh, uh, Judeo-Christian ethic is uplifted, what do we get out of that? We get a culture that knows how to love. Islam cannot be that because Allah has no equal that he needs to know how to love. Does that make sense? So let's not sit here and say all religions are equal. They are not. And by the way, if you're here this morning, I wanna, I'm going to press you hard. I'm going to press some of you really hard this morning. You're going to be uncomfortable with what I'm about to say. I don't think you can be a Bible-believing Christian and think that all roads lead to God. Jesus did not teach that. Jesus taught an exclusivity. John 14, 6. Right? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through other religions. Isn't that what Jesus taught? No, except through me. So the issue here, I'm not trying, this is not tolerance or intolerance. The issue is what is true, correct? And by the way, how are we supposed to spread Christianity? Does anybody know? Self-sacrifice, right? We're always to die to ourselves and unconditionally love others. That's what Jesus taught us, all right? So there's the cultural authority. I have a, I listed on your book, okay? I'm going to list it on your handout, a great book called The Book That Made Your World. Everybody see that there? Nod your head if you're still with me. I know this is getting a little tedious, but I want you to stay with me. The Book That Made Your World. Okay, that's written by a man that's an Indian, not American Indian, Indian from India, okay? He's an Indian Christian that did a great study on how the Bible has influenced Western culture to lift it and bless it, okay? And uh, I really want you to read it. It's probably one of the most influential books I've read in the last few years, all right? I really want to encourage you grab that book, read that book, okay? So there's the cultural authority of Christianity lifting cultures, okay, especially the least of these uh, that often find blessing because of the God of the Bible. So let me finish with this this morning, all right? Let me ask you a question once this plane flies by. All right. <clears throat> On whose authority are you going to live your life? Let me ask you a question. On whose authority are you going to live your life? Because we all get to leave here this morning with a choice, right? I mean, we live in this culture where we kind of believe in to each his own. Like, we all get to determine truth. We all get to determine how we want to live our lives. We all get to determine these things. And so the issue is, if you're going to walk out of here this morning and only live on your authority, the only thing that really matters is what you think then what you're saying is you've been everywhere. You've seen enough of the expanding universe. You, you've gathered enough information. You're smart enough. You're culturally astute enough. You're educated enough. You're emotionally stable enough. You're experienced enough to determine truth for yourself. The problem with that worldview, and here's the sticky point, right? And I've yet to hear a satisfying answer. The problem is, is when two individuals that have determined truth for themselves have contradictory worldviews. 
How do we solve that problem, right? 15 years ago, there were a couple, there were some guys that hijacked some planes and they flew them into some American buildings believing that what they were doing was true and right and good. And so if it's to each their own, how are we able to say, well, no, that wasn't right. I'd, I'd say most Americans would say that. I would agree with you, right? It wasn't the right thing to do. It was evil. But how we get to those conclusions oftentimes are on two different paths. And so I, I said this a few weeks ago in the Hebrew series. I had this professor in seminary who was really, really smart. And he said, when it comes to logic, truth cannot be both be and non-be at the same time. And I always said, I don't know what that means, but it sounds really smart, Right. It means you can't have two contradictory ideas and they both be true. And that's the problem in our culture. That's how we're ending up with the video that I showed you at the beginning. Nobody can decide to say somebody else is wrong. I'm sure glad that there were some countries that stood up to Hitler and said, what's going on here is wrong, right? And so then the question becomes, well, then, well whose authority am I going to live under? Am I going to lend over my own? And when we do that, if it's each individual to each his own, man, we're, we're talking about chaos. Let me tell you something about truth. Truth has to be objective. Tr you should write that down. Truth has to be objective. That means it can't be subject to each individual's interpretation. It's got to be unmovable. It's got to be knowable. It has to come from outside of ourselves. Otherwise, everybody's going to be running around doing what is right in their own eyes. So this morning you have a choice. You can be your own authority on truth, or you can bend a knee to the divine authority, the inspired truth of the Scriptures. And bend a knee to scriptural authority. I want to go back to 2 Timothy 3. Usually we look at verse 16. I want to look at verse 15 for a minute. It's very important. The Apostle Paul here is teaching young pastor Timothy. And he says, you have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood. And they have given you the wisdom to receive salvation that comes from trusting in what? Jesus Christ. So what's he talking about here? He starts this teaching on why we can trust the scriptures, verse 16, and why they're inspired and why they're true. He starts with the gospel. And he says, Timothy, from your young age, you have been taught the gospel, and you've been taught because you've trusted the wisdom of the scriptures. Now I'm going to, ready, I'm going to blow your minds. You're ready? It's really cool. That's really good theology, by the way, all right? And you learned it, especially if you're old like me and you grew up in a traditional church in Sunday school, you learned it in Sunday school. This is a really controversial song in this culture, but there's so much truth in it that I want you all to go home with this. Ready? It's Jesus loves me, what? This I know. How do you know it? Do you realize how controversial that song is? Don't teach your kids that song in this culture. People think they're nuts. Right? Yet that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. Timothy, you know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? You know this because the Bible tells us so, because it's inspired by the Word of God, and it, therefore it is true. It's true. And we should build our lives on truth. Tim Keller is a pastor that I love to listen to up in New York City. Very smart guy. And he tells this story. I'll finish with this. We're going to close with prayer. 
tells a story of a, um, another pastor that he knew where uh, some parents called him one day, and he said, hey, they, his parents said, hey, I'm, I'm kind of panicked here. My son went away to college, his freshman year of college, he came home, he grew up in a Christian home, grew up in the church. Now he says he doesn't believe in Christianity anymore, not a Christian, not following after Christ. So they asked this pastor, he asked this pastor if he could meet with their son. And so the pastor meets with the son. He says, you don't believe? And the son said, yeah, agreed to meet with the pastor. And he sat down with the pastor and he said, well, I went to this religions class. And, and the professor made a lot of great points, really undermined my upbringing, Christianity. I'm just not sure I can believe Christianity anymore. And he said, well, give me some of the points. Well, he couldn't remember many of them, which was quite fascinating. But the one or two that he remembered, the pastor was able to easily answer those questions. So then he asked some more questions, and the, and the young man didn't have any answers. Finally, he said to the young man, well, have you been going to church since you went away to college? No, I, I, you know, after the religious class, I just felt like church was useless. He said, well, did you get involved in campus ministries? I know there's some great campus ministries up there that the college you're going to. And the young man said, no, same thing. You know, the religious class undermined my belief. I didn't feel the need to go to religion, to any uh, campus ministries. So this pastor asked one more very pointed question. He looked at this young man in the eyes. He said, who are you having sex with? Got real awkward and real uncomfortable. You might be saying, I don't understand the question. See, the question is this. And this young man knew the question. The Bible defines sex as a gift from God to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife, one man, one woman, in the confines of marriage. Anything outside of that, we're doing it a way that God does not approve of, a way that's called sin. So he understood that he was asking this young man, do you want to live the way you want to live? Is that really the issue here? Is the issue really that you, you, you want to be your own authority? You're going to decide morality. You're going to decide right and wrong. You're going to decide how you want to live. And oftentimes this whole issue of truth and authority boils down to I want to make my own decisions when I want to make them. That has been the problem that has plagued humanity since Adam and Eve. Where they said, God, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to be my own authority. And sometimes our doubts can really be boiled down to I want to do what I want to do when I want to do them. And so let me ask you a question. Who's your authority this morning? Who's your authority this morning? Is it the Word of God? Because if you understand the Word of God, you're going to bow a knee to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I can, listen, I'm going to make a guarantee this morning. You ready for this? I'm going to make a guarantee this morning. I guarantee you, if you bow a knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you will know the truth, and you will be free. That's a guarantee. You want to know why it's a guarantee? That's the words of the resurrected Jesus Christ. 
And I can guarantee you the opposite is true. If you choose your own authority and you choose to do things your own way, you will end up like the prodigal son. You will end up in the pig pen. And there will come a day where you will sit there in the pig pen and you will go, man, how did I get here? You know what? I long to go back to my creator, my heavenly father. Even his servants have it better. And you'll be like the prodigal son. And I hope for some of you that day is right now. I hope you showed up here today because you're in the pig pen and you were hoping to find some truth. I've got some truth for you. When you bow a knee to the person and work of Jesus Christ, you will be free of the pig pen. And the prodigal son made his way back home, humble. And he said, you know what, I'm not even worthy to be called a son. That's what he rehearsed on the way home. I'm not even worthy to be called a son, just make me one of your servants. And the father sees him from a long way off. And by the way, the God of the Bible, he's not an angry God. He wants you to have life and life to the full. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth. You want to have life, pursue me. I'm the giver of life. I created you. I know how it best works. Yes? And so as he's making his way home, the father sees him from a long way off and says, you're not a servant. You're a son. You're a daughter of the king of kings. They put a robe on him. And he welcomed him home and they threw, and God, uh, the picture is God throwing a party for the kid that came home. And there's someone here this morning, that's where you are. Someone here this morning says, that's where you are. And the world's trying to tell you that this stuff called Christianity, this stuff called the Word of God is foolishness. And I'm here to tell you it is freeing. And it is life. And it is the truth. And it is the way. And every person here, probably every person here that's a Christian, it's because they got into the pig pen. They got into their own little pig pen and they said, this is not where I want to be. Doing my own way got me here. And so today is the day. Return home to the King of Kings. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times we want to do what we want to do the way we want to do it. In some ways, God, I'm grateful that leads us to the pig pen because it's usually when we're in our lowest point that we're like, something's wrong, something's not right. And what's wrong and what's not right is that we, we've built our lives on a lie. And when we build on a lie, the, we, we end up in bondage. I pray for the one this morning that, that showed up here this morning because the truth is our life's in a pig pen. And like, I'm trying to find freedom. I pray that today would be the day they turn from their sins, they turn from doing things their way, and they pursue the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed to us in the Scriptures. That they would know the hope and the freedom that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they would know the truth of Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And in knowing Christ is freedom. Thank you for that hope. Help us, God, as Christians, to stand on the truth of your word, unwavering. Not because we want to be intolerant, not because we want to be rude, because we know that the truth sets people free. And we want everyone we come in contact with to know the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the church we want to be. That's what we're building upon. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.